would you encourage us? Would you just bring us further in? There's not a person in this room or a person listening online who's tapped out, who's, 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 who's hit their maximum level of the kingdom of God within this. So I just say, I'm, I'm yours and I want to be yours more. Would you come and use a foolish little thing like a sermon to just do that? And Holy Spirit, we give you free reign to speak however you want to speak, whispering in our ears, talking to your people. And I pray for, we bless, there's a lot of church buildings and a lot of church families around here in this neighborhood. We bless them too. And there's a lot of churches around this city who are right now doing the same exact thing. And we bless them. Holy Spirit, would you empower and enliven those gatherings? And we pray for a church out in Brookfield. We pray for Elmbrook who need you right now in deep ways. Would you, Holy Spirit, deal richly and, and bring them together as a family in a really rough time? We bless them and we're with them. In Jesus' name, amen. Man, you can have a seat. So if you've, if you've been around Bruce City Church for any length of time, you probably only need three or four weeks to have this dynamic where you've, you'll hear something that I say all the time. And here it is. I say, we'll say, this thing that we're doing, this gathering, this event, this, this service, it isn't church. You didn't come to church today. Maybe you told your friend or family, like, hey, yeah, I gotta, let's go to church. We got to go to church. You didn't do that. You didn't go to church. You are the church, right? So we'll kind of say that and, and hopefully disciple you into seeing the church in, in a new and fuller way. But I got to tell you, this thing, that doesn't take away from the reality that I love this. I love this. I love being with you. I love being together. And I love a number of things that happen in environments like, just like this. I love, I am a junkie. I'll, my kids know, they'll, they, they'll, they'll say, what's your favorite thing? And they'll ask each other, and they'll, we know daddy's favorite thing. To worship in Jesus. Because <laughs> it's true. I love worshiping God together with a group of people who are just giving themselves to that God and saying, I want more and more of you, and I want to pour out my heart to you. I don't care if I look like a fool doing it. I love that. I can't get enough of it. I love being in spaces where I see people connecting and, and, and being known and knowing one another and relationship deepening and happening. I love that. I love I love creating a space where we can get American people to be generous, actually give what they have away. That's a beautiful, countercultural, self-sacrificial thing to do, and I love it. I love, obviously, preaching the gospel. I love declaring the truth about who you are, that you right now, as you are, are entirely and completely loved by God. You are the Beloved. And there'll never be a time when you do enough things or right things or good things to be loved more. You'll never be more loved by God than you are right now. I love this. But there's one thing, one thing that happens in this room, when we gather people together in a room like this, and in this particular group, Bruce City Church, that I love maybe even more than all those other things. I love... When, when people ask me, what, what do you love most about your church? They hear I'm a pastor. What do you love most? I say this. I love that we have this group of people who are from all sorts of different 
areas of life. We have a group of people who are, who are from completely different neighborhoods. We have, em- we have uh, baby boomer, empty nester suburbanites who are doing really well, and we've got people straight off the streets, and they come together, and they worship God as one. We have Democrats and we have Republicans, conservatives and liberals. If you, if, you don't, if you like being around only people of this same political ideology, don't come here because we've got all sorts of people. And I love it. I love that what happens when different people come together. Different experiences, different, different backgrounds, different current realities. People who seem to have it all together and people who are recovering addicts who just lost everything. Again, see, something magical happens when that reality, when worlds collide, beauty happens. And the reason that it's, I love it so much is because it's so unique in our culture. Because what humanity, this isn't a recent phenomenon, this isn't a postmodern thing, we just see it in a different way, but human beings have always been drawn to people who are like them. We are tribal animals. We like being around people who look like us, who talk like us, who think like us, who agree with us, who, who, who come from the same area, the same region. We, we just like being affirmed an awful lot. I don't want to be challenged, I want to have people nod their heads yes and amen when I say my opinion. That's, not a, that's a unique thing in the world, and that is the beauty and the potency and the brilliance of the church. All people coming together. It's, that's the tragedy of why, we, we, why, why we, have, we, have, we have mostly a bunch of white faces in here. And my, my biggest prayer, consistently since we started, is that we would defy the odds in the city of Milwaukee. Would you pray with me that that happens? And racial, different races would come together. But this is the beauty of the church. I was listening to N.T. Wright yesterday. He's a biblical scholar. He's also a historian. He is brilliant. I was listening to him talk about the church, and he said, did you know that the church was actually, 2,000 years ago, was the first group of people, the first movement in the history of the world? And he's a historian. He's brilliant. He said it was the first movement in the history of the world where all sorts of different people came together. You'd never, you would never see a transnational, trans-regional, trans, uh, transgendered, trans-socioeconomic trans, uh, uh, background, slaves worshiping with wealthy people. It would have never, ever happened in the history of the world, but in the church, something different happened. Because they were what we are, a bunch of broken people who just are in need of Jesus. I love that. When worlds collide, there's, there's potential for ugliness, right? We see that in the news around us. But when worlds collide, there's also potential for all sorts of beauty. See, because when you introduce yourself to somebody else's process, to somebody else's reality, to somebody else's perspective, all of a sudden your world goes from black and white to richly technicolored. When you, when you let worlds collide and you get to know somebody and you, you, you invite somebody who has a different perspective, a different reality, a different walk of life, a different place, all of a sudden, the way you see life becomes more complex and it becomes more rich and more textured and beautiful. Beautiful things are possible. Magic happens when worlds collide. It's, that's the potential. What we're going to find in our text today 
is the epitome in the ancient world of two people from two completely different portions of life coming together and worlds collide. And we're going to see what happens. The potential when, those, when two worlds, two people, two different kind of people collide. We've been in the series that we're calling, Where is God? Where is God? We started out this, this, this fall season studying the book of Ruth. The book of Ruth is this tiny little book that if you have two pages that are stuck together between, between Judges and between 1 Samuel, if, if those two pages are stuck together, you'll miss Ruth altogether. It's this tiny little book, four chapters, 85 verses, but it's one of the clearest pictures of the gospel you'll find in all of the scriptures. As we've studied the book of Ruth and asked this question, where's God? We've seen, we've been confronted the last two weeks by two different, startlingly different characters. The book of Ruth starts with this old woman named Naomi. And Naomi was, she had it all in the beginning of the book of Ruth. She, she, she was an Israelite who were seen as, who, were, who thought they were the chosen people of God, right? That'll make you feel good about yourself and your tribe were the chosen ones. So she was one of the chosen ones. She was an Israelite, and she lived in Bethlehem, a solid city, and she was married to a good man from a good family, a good clan, good tribe. Things are looking good for Naomi. Then she has two sons, which was everything for women in the ancient Near East. I'm going to try to step out of the sun because you see my spit, spit spray a lot. <laughs> Naomi had a lot going for her. Her life was good. Hit cruise control. I can live like this for the rest of my life. Please. But then what happened to Naomi is what has happened to some of you guys, some of us. That cruise control, somebody slammed on the brakes of her life, and her life turned upside down in a moment. She, her people found themselves in the midst of a famine. In the midst of crazy uncertainty, not being able to provide for your family, this happens all around the world in third world countries today, calamity hits, and what happens? You become a refugee. Naomi and her family become refugees moving to another country, trying to find any sort of sustenance to keep their family alive. They become immigrants. It's a story of, that, that resonates, has little points that resonate within our culture. So they're refuge, they go from living in the fat of the land in the, as, with the chosen people to being refugees and immigrants. Not only that, while they're immigrants, while Naomi is in this foreign country, looked at as an outsider, her husband dies. For those of you who are married or have been married, you can, you can feel how disrupting and jarring that would be for your, for your process, how that switches the way you see life and everything's turned upside down. Not only does her husband die, but several years later, both of her sons die, the ones who were there to protect her and to provide for her, who could give their, her her identity, the ones who could keep her in this, this upper echelon of society. Everything and everybody is now gone. She's now a reject, an outsider who no one would have no concern about as a widow, an immigrant widow. Her world had turned upside down, and this was the question she was asking, the question that many of us ask at these points in life, where in the world are you, God? Because I can't see you anywhere. I don't feel your presence. I don't hear your word. I don't feel any encouragement. I just feel like garbage. Where is God? And we saw last week 
that, answer, that question get answered in the most unlikely places. Naomi had two daughters-in-law, two new widows, who they had just lost their, their wives, Naomi's sons. And these two ladies had a fork in the road. They, they were at, maybe you're at a, a point like this in life, where you're at a fork in the road. Got to choose maybe it's career, maybe it's vocation, maybe it's where I'm living, where we got to move, or maybe it's relational fork in the road. There's all sorts of fork in the roads in, in life, isn't there? And Naomi and Orpah, these two daughters-in-law, had a fork in the road moment. Do I go back home? Do I go back to, do I stay in Moab? with my country, my people, my family, and I'll probably be able to marry someone else, have a husband who gives me protection, who gives me provision, have a good life. That's one direction I could go. And then, or I could stay with this bitter old crabby crank of a woman who's got nothing and who has no future. And if I go this direction with this old woman, I am removing my future because I'm tying myself to her. And that means that I'm going to go back to her country with her. I'm going to become an immigrant. I'm going to become a widow who's rejected, who's cast aside, who no one cares about. We're going to have to live in poverty, beg for our sustenance, for anything that we have. Two choices. A year and some months ago, we, we were hiring a new worship pastor. And Grace Lund was pretty much, when you have Grace Lund, that's the only option. But so we, we brought her in to interview her. We brought her in to interview her, and we talked to Elliot and Grace and had a great time, and then they left, and the elders and Dave Arnone, who's our director of operations, we sat around, and we, I just said, well, what do you guys think? The room was quiet, and Dave goes, it's not too often in life you get presented with a no-brainer, but this is a no-brainer. <laughs> you, you, you say, Grace, would you come work for us? So R- Ruth and Orpah they came to one of those forks in the road, and they came to one of those absolute 100% no-brainers. You go to where you can have a future. You go to where you can have life. You go to where you can maybe get married again, where you're not a reject, where you're not an immigrant. Why would you, cast, why would you tie yourself to this bitter old lady and pledge yourself to a life of poverty just to love her? But Ruth, she embodied this this way that we were created to live in. Remember from last week, this Hebrew word that's more of a concept called chesed. Let me hear you say it again. Chesed. Chesed. Chesed, it has no translation, English translation. There's no one word in the English language that, can, that defines and get us, gets us to understand this Hebrew word chesed. See, because chesed, you have to string English words together. It means basically self-sacrificial Loyalty, kindness, and agape love. When I say agape love, agape is a Greek word for love. There's different levels of love in the Greek. And agape is the deepest, richest, most unconditional, self-sacrificial forms of love. And this is what chesed was. Hebrew scholars say that chesed is this idea that we were created to live in. We were created in the image of God, the imago Dei. And when we live in chesed, this self-emptying, loyal, kind agape love sort of way of living, we're actually tapping into what we were created for. And Ruth knew, I'm at this fork in the road, and my no-brainer is, I'm going to tie myself to this person just because of my self-sacrificial love. It's incredible, and it's the gospel. It's what God has done for you. So now we come to the story playing out. The story's going to continue, and we're going to start this morning watching worlds collide. We're going to start in, in Ruth 1, chapter 20, or verse 22. This is just the end of the, the first chapter. And our storyteller, 
whoever the author was, I love how they tell this story. There's transitions and scenes that change. It's almost like a play unfolding before us. And here's one of those transitional verses. So Naomi returned from Moab accompanied by Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, arriving in Bethlehem as the barley harvest was beginning. Next scene. Now Naomi had a relative on her husband's side, a man of standing from the clan of Elimelech, her dead husband, whose name was Boaz. Now hold the phone. Boaz. I'm intensely jealous of this man's name. (laughs) I get Randy. I mean, I'm a junior, my dad's name is Randy, so that's cool, but Randy's not a good name. I worked at Dodge City back in the day, when I was in college, I was just working kind of grunt work, and I had a mechanics shirt on, and it would say Dodge City on one side, Randy on the other, and it seems like that's where my name belongs, right? <laughs> kind of, kind of redneckish a little bit. Boaz, I'm, I, I hope I can say this at church, that's a badass name. <laughs> you introduce yourself to me as Boaz, I'm going to be like, sir, yes, sir, Mr. Boaz. It's a good one. Boaz. Whoa, all right, man. Verse 2, and Ruth, the Moabite, said to Naomi, let me go to the fields and pick up the leftover grain behind anyone in whose eyes I find favor. Naomi said to her, go ahead, get out of here, go ahead, my daughter. So she went out, she entered a field and began to glean behind the harvesters. As it turned out, she was working in a field belonging to Boaz, who was from the clan of Elimelech. Now, hold on first. Let's, we're going to go through this in little starts and stops because I don't want us to read through this and just be like, oh, that's a cool story. This is an ancient story that we have to get, dive into. So what, the first thing that we find is that twice in these probably th- four verses, did you notice how Ruth, how the author referred to Ruth? She's a main character. She's kind of the protagonist of the story. And he doesn't just say Ruth because everyone knows who it is. He says twice in this little th- four verses, Ruth the Moabite. Right? Ruth the Moabite. And what he's wanting to do there is communicate to his audience, don't forget who Ruth is. Ruth is not one of us. Ruth is not an insider, she's an outsider in the, people, the, the covenant people. She's, she's not one of the chosen ones. She's an she's ethnic and racial minority. She's an other. The author is saying, don't forget who Ruth is. Because if you do that, you forget the beauty of the story. Ruth the Moabite. Then we see she goes down into a field, and if you can imagine in your head, Bethlehem is this little clustered city. All sorts of dwellings clustered together. It's a solid city in the ancient Near East. And then you go down the hills, about a half-hour walk, and there's the fields where the landowners own these fields that would be cultivated and then harvested at the time of harvest. The time of harvest in our calendar would be about March or April. And they would go down and harvest. And the time of harvest was not just a time of work, which it was. It was a time of celebration. It was a time of plenty. It was a good time, especially for people who had just gone through a famine. It would have been the biggest celebration and party you can imagine. People were full of life in the harvest. And then it says, I love, I love, we've got a little sarcasm here. Did you see this little thing where it says, so she went out, she went to enter the field, and she began to glean behind the harvesters. As it turned out, 
she found herself in Boaz's field. The, some people translate that, as luck would have it, she found herself in Boaz's field. Now what, she, what the author is doing here is, is basically sarcastically saying, do you see what just happened? See, we ask this question in the book of Ruth, where is God? Over and over again. And what we find is that God is everywhere if you're looking for him. God is moving this woman who's showing his hesed, his self-sacrificial, unconditional love and kindness. And he's saying, all right, girl, you go here. This is kind of how it is in our lives too, isn't it? Where are you, God? I don't see you. And he's like, I'm right here. And I'm moving with you and through you and in you. Just got to be looking for it. So then, one last thing we find that, I, that is important for us to understand. She said, let me go into the fields and pick up the leftover grain to anyone behind anyone who, in whose eyes I find favor. And so she went out in verse 3 to a field and began to glean behind the harvesters. Glean. Again, doesn't mean anything to us. But what we find is that this gleaning was something that was instituted by God in the Torah, in the law. It was basically kind of a, a social welfare program for the marginalized and the needy. Let's read where God instituted this in Leviticus 19. When you reap the harvests of your land, he's talking to the Israelites, and he's saying when you, when you have your own land and you're a landowner, when you reap the harvest of your land, that's currency, by the way. That's, that's their economy. That's their money. When you reap the harvest of your land, do not reap to the very edges of your field. Don't reap everything. Take everything for yourself. Or gather the gleanings, the stuff left behind on the ground of your harvest. Do not go over your vineyard a second time or pick the grapes up that have fallen. Leave them for the poor and the foreigner, for I am the Lord your God. Leviticus 23, God's again reminding his people, when you reap the harvest of your land, do not reap to the very edges of your field. Don't take everything for yourself. Don't gather the gleanings, the leftover stuff. Leave them for the poor and the foreigner reminding, residing among you. I am the Lord your God. One more time in Deuteronomy 24. When you're harvesting your field and you overlook a sheaf of, of grain, don't go back to get it. Leave it for the foreigner, the fatherless, and the widow, the marginalized, the rejects of the, of, of, in, the, in the impoverished of our world, so that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hands. When you beat the olives from your trees, don't go over the branches a second time, even though there's still olives on them. Leave what remains for the foreigner, the fatherless, and the widow. When you harvest the grapes in your vineyard, don't go over the vines again. Leave what remains again for the foreigner, the fatherless, and the widow. Remember that you were slaves in Egypt. You were the marginalized. This is why I command you to do this. This is the God we have, friends. And I gotta tell you, when, whenever we talk about providing for the poor, we all, it feels political, doesn't it? But I got to tell you, I, and I mean this from the bottom of my heart, I couldn't care less how you vote this upcoming election. Some of us are really looking forward to voting Republican and trying to keep the majority. Some of us are really looking forward to voting Democrat and kind of taking over again. I don't care. God bless you. I care that you manifest yourself in this kind of way, though. That's what I care, how you live. That you live a life that's looking out for the marginalized because that's the kind of God you serve. That is a universal for all followers of Yahweh. So we find that there's this provision, but in, in kind of like welfare, but it isn't kind of a let me sit on my couch and get a check uh, once a month kind of thing. You had to, gleaning a field was hard work. It was no fun. 
You would often get abused by people who were uh, racist or, or xenophobic or whatever, and, you would, and it was just really, really hard work picking up the scraps, and you'd work really hard all day in the hot Middle Eastern climate, and you'd have very little to show for it. So this is the context that we're reading, and let's go on. What time is it? All right. Just then, Boaz arrived from Bethlehem and greeted the harvesters, the Rich, powerful man comes in from the city and he sees all his people, all his employees working hard, bustling in his fields. And he greeted the harvesters. The Lord be with you, he said. The Lord bless you, they answered. This is a common ancient Jewish greeting in Hebrew. And Boaz asked the overseer of his harvesters, who does that young woman belong to? He sees Ruth and he's like, who? I haven't noticed her around. I've seen the other gleaners, but I haven't seen her. Who's she? Who does she belong to? See, because slavery was just a normal part of their economy, it could have been, or who is she married to, whatever, who does she belong to? The foreman, the overseer, he's kind of the foreman on the field, he says, she is the Moabite. That's how he identifies her. Very few of us, us, us white faces in the room, we don't know what that feels like. But Ruth is getting called out for the way she looks, because she's different. Ruth is getting called out for her ethnicity because she's different she's an outsider she's the moabite that who came back from moab with naomi it seems like the story has gotten around she said please let me glean and gather among the sheaves behind the harvesters she came into the she came into the field and has remained here since the morning until now except for a short rest in the shelter basically he's saying she's gleaning the fields and she came in from the fields in the shelter and asked us she had the audacity to ask us for the best spot for all the gleaners gleaners Right behind the harvesters. See, what would happen is there would, there would, people would harvest in teams. There would be a man who had the sheath, and they'd go around the grain, and he'd cut the heads off the grain, and when he had enough, he'd kind of bundle it up and leave it on the ground. And then a woman would come in, not a slave or anything, an employee, and she'd come in with some twine, and she'd tie up that, that bundle of grain. For them, then they would bring it to the threshing floor. That's how they harvested. And a, for a gleaner, one of these impoverished people, the best spot would be right behind the harvesters because you'd get all, you could be able to get all that stuff that they left behind. Ruth, this Moabite outsider, immigrant, widow, has the guts to say, hey, do you mind if I take that best spot? See, because she's still embodying this hesed. She's saying, I've got this woman named Naomi to provide for. Can you please let me in? And the foreman's kind of annoyed. It's like, she hasn't let, gone away. So, Boaz, can you tell her? Go on. So Boaz said to Ruth, My daughter, listen to me. Don't go and glean in another field, don't, and don't go away from here. Stay here with the woman who worked for me. You've just moved from a gleaner to one of my employees. Watch the field where the men are harvesting and follow after the woman. After they bundle it up, follow after them. I have told the men not to lay a hand on you because that would have been normal. I've told my men not to lay a hand on you, and whenever you are thirsty, go and get a drink from the water jars from the, the men have fi- filled. Now we hear, whenever you're thirsty, go and get a drink from the water jars wherever the men have filled. That's just like, okay, great. No big deal. Actually, it was a really big deal and unheard of. See, in this whole process of work called the harvest, 
If you're an immigrant woman, you would have been expected to go fetch the water for the Israelite men. It was just, expe- and it was hard work. You'd have to walk to the well, you fill up the well, which is hard work, and then you carry it back on your shoulders and on your head to, to, to give to the men. And then you kind of, you just got to kind of go thirsty. But Boaz is saying, no, 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 you immigrant woman who would have to usually go fetch the water for the Israelites, you're going to be able to drink the water that's been fetched by the Israelites. It's crazy. And then he says, by the way, yes, you can have the best spot of all the gleaners. I want you to be provided for. And it was a normal practice for the gleaners to go hop around to try to go to the best, best areas. Once you've, the spot has been gleaned, you don't want to stay there. So, but he said, no, 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 stay here. I'm going to provide for you. Now, many of us, when we hear this story, and many unfortunate teachers and preachers, when they preach this story, kind of paint this picture of this romance is starting now. Right? Ruth, Boaz notices Ruth. She must have been some smoking hottie. I hate it when pastors say that. My smoking hot wife. Is that what? Shut up. Anyways. Talk about reducing women. This isn't a Boaz, a man who, who was motivated by romance, and so he's like, ooh, I'm going to woo her and give her lots of things. I'm going to put her in the best place. I'm going to, maybe she'll like me. The world didn't li- work out like that. See, if Boaz, this wealthy, powerful man, walked in and he saw a woman that he desired that he liked, he'd just say, hey, dude, uh, Go get that one for me. She's mine now. Particularly an immigrant foreign woman, widow. He'd never, that, that, that's, a, that's the epitome of a person that you don't want. See, Boaz isn't motivated by his hormones. Boaz is motivated by hesed. Boaz isn't motivated by, by oh, I need a, a romance. He's motivated by agape love says, I want to bless you. I, you're a reject, you're an outsider. I want to put you on the inside now. This is a beautiful embodiment of this chesed that we were created for. Boaz shows it off. And we read further. Ruth gets it. She knows how outlandish this is. And she said, it says in verse 10, at this she bowed with her face to the ground. So she's on her knees and she bows her face to the ground. This is the way they would do it. And she would ask, why have I found such favor in your eyes that you would notice me, a foreigner? Boaz replied, I've been told about all you've done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband. I've been told how you, I've heard how you left your father and mother and came in your homeland and came to live with a people you did not know before. May the Lord repay you for whatever you have done. May you be richly rewarded by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you've come to take refuge. It seems as though this story of this foreign Moabite woman who chose to leave her life and future behind for the, for the sake of this other woman, Naomi, it's become famous now in Bethlehem. Word has traveled of this crazy woman who's made this crazy choice to tie herself to this crabby old crank of a bitter lady who has no future, no provision. Instead of going to a future herself, it's, word is spread. And it's almost as if Boaz is saying, Thank yourself, girl. I've heard about how generous and kind and loving you are, this chesed that you're embodied. 
What else, why, what, how else could I treat you? What we find is that when we actually embody this way we were created to live in, this chesed of God, this selfless, loyal, kind, agape love, when you embody that, it gets catchy. People around you are like, whoa, I like that. That's not normal. And I want some of that. And also, did you notice what what Boaz said? He said, may the Lord repay you for what you have done. May you be richly rewarded by the Lord of the the God of Israel under whose wings you have come to take refuge. What, What Boaz is basically saying is, this isn't me rewarding you. God's just working through me. It says, may, may the Lord repay you and treat you with kindness as he's repaying her and treating her with kindness. See, Boaz got it, that the way God provides his pe- for his people is through his people. The way God cares for his people is through his people. When you ask, where is God, and we expect some supernatural manna to drop from the sky, usually it's just, where is God? He's in the people around you who are loving you self-sacrificially and uncon- unconditionally. Boaz gets it. Let's keep going. We're going to now blast through the rest of the chapter. So at mealtime, it's mealtime, Boaz said to her, hey, come over here. Have some bread and dip it into the wine vinegar. The gleaners would be off by themselves, but he said, no, come into my, come in, you're an insider now, remember? When she sat down with the harvesters, he offered her some roasted grain, some delicious food. She ate all she wanted and had some left over. As she got up to glean, Boaz gave orders to his men, let her gather among the sheaves and don't reprimand her. She gets the best spot. Even pull out some stalks for her from the bundles and leave it for her to pick up and don't rebuke her. He's giving away his money to this woman. So Ruth gleaned in the field until evening. There she threshed the barley she had gathered. They would take like a bat, basically, and bat all the grain out of the husks so they could actually do something with it. She threshed the the barley as she she had gathered and it amounted to about an ephah. Anyone know what an ephah is? Yeah, I didn't think so. An ephah is about 30 pounds. She collected 30 pounds of grain in one day. Now, historians and archaeologists have found that ancient Babylonian men, when they would work a harvest, in one day their pay would be about one to two pounds of grain. So what that means, the ancient readers would say, an ephah! Because he just gave her a half, a, at least a half month's worth of wages right in that one day. Want to know what generosity looks like? She carried it back to town and probably her, probably her uh, head covering, she carried it in, into town, 30 pounds of grain, and her mother-in-law saw how much she had gathered. Ruth also brought out and gave to her what she had left over that she had, after she had eaten enough. Her mother-in-law, Naomi, asked her, where in the world did you glean today? Where did you work? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. This is not normal. Then Ruth told her mother-in-law about the one at whose place she had been working. The, man, the name of the man I worked with today is Boaz, she said. Oh, the Lord bless him. Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, he has not stopped showing his kindness to the living and the dead, honoring my dead husband and sons. She added, that man is our close relative. He is one of our guardian redeemers. Hope is breaking forth to Naomi. Then Ruth said, the Moabite, again, Ruth the Moabite said, even, he even said to me, stay with my workers until they finish harvesting all my grain. Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, Ruth, it will be good for you, my daughter, to go with the woman who worked for him because in someone else's field you might be harmed. It's just normal. 
So Ruth stayed close to the woman of Boaz to glean until the barley and the wheat harvest, two harvests, would finish. It's about two months' time. And she lived with her mother-in-law, it says. Now there's just two things that I want to kind of, that I've been observing and confronted by with this text as I've been studying it. Two more things before we're done. The first is this. Throughout this story, and in particular, when you see the particulars of just how marginalized Ruth and Naomi were as widows, as an immigrant, as impoverished, as an outsider, I'm confronted with just how marginalized Ruth was, but then I'm confronted by the fact that God is using her story to tell his story. God is using the most unlikely person you could ever imagine to put the gospel on display. You would have, in this time in the ancient Near East, you would have never in a million years thought of featuring a woman to tell a beautiful story about the heart of God. You'd never done it. Much less a woman who's a widow, who's an immigrant, who's impoverished. You would have never imagined this is the most unlikely person who, would, who would, God would use to put on display, but he does it. And what we find is that we, our God friends, is the God of the marginalized. Our God is the God of the marginalized, and our gospel is the gospel of the marginalized. We, t- we look at this and we say, oh, that's kind of cute. We kind of think it's an anecdotal story. But friends, this is the way God has worked all the way through history. If you look at the scriptures, you'll find that it's loaded. All of the main pivotal people in the scriptures are, are the most unlikely you'd ever imagine. God comes to Abraham and he says, Abram, rip yourself from your family and your tribe and your identity and covenant yourself to me. You're going to have no more protection. I'm going to be your God. And he says, fine, sure, I'll do it. Then we move along and we find that God uses Moses the murderer to be the leader of his people, to lead him out of captivity. Then we find Ruth the Moabite, this immigrant widow woman God's using to put on display. He uses David, the weakest among his family of all his brothers, the most unlikely. He becomes the greatest king in the nation of Israel. Jesus, our Savior, the king of the universe, the creator of all things, he comes and he lives as not a king of privilege. He's a blue-collar worker from a forgotten city who lives his adult life as an itinerant, wandering, homeless person. Saul, the one who God built the church on, was the one who persecuted the church and set himself against the church, and God uses him to become the greatest father in the church in all of history. This is not just a cute little anecdotal story. Friends, this is who our God is. He is the God of the marginalized. The earliest followers of Jesus, when Jesus was wandering the countryside, it wasn't the rich and the powerful and the influential government leaders, religious leaders who followed him religiously. It was the the rejects, the marginalized, the tax collectors, the prostitutes, the sinners of the day, the lepers, the ones you want to stay away from. Those are the ones who got it. It was the marginalized. The ones like us, the religious people in power, they were challenged by Jesus, wanted nothing to do with him. When you look at the earliest, early church, the earliest followers of Jesus, when the church became the church, it wasn't the people in the power of the Roman Empire who followed, who followed the way of Christ. It was the marginalized, slaves and Gentiles, on all sorts of nasty people coming together because they were just following this Jesus. And there were some wealthy people, but as soon as you said yes to Jesus, you became marginalized because you were cast out of society and out of your family. And you, but you know what? This marginalized group of people embodied the gospel in ways the church has never seen again. Because do you know when the church lost 
its beauty in the scandalous nature of the gospel? Do you know when the church lost its real power? It was around the fourth century when the church became the the religion of the state, when it became accepted. When the church got power in the ways of the world, they lost all their supernatural power and they became corrupt. All throughout church history, if you look, when the church becomes accepted by the empire, that's when the gospel gets all watered down. And instead of speaking truth to those in power, the church becomes obsessed with keeping the power that they have. Our gospel is the gospel of the marginalized friends. And it actually sometimes takes the eyes of the marginalized to see the fullness and the beauty of the gospel. Our God is the God of the marginalized. Here's the last thing. Last thing that I want to think about is how to live as people in power. How to live as people in power. Now most of us, the vast majority of us in this room or probably listening online, are people in power. We might not be that 1%, you know, but we live good lives. And I love, again, as I said in the beginning, the, one of the things that I love most about our church family is that we do have both kinds of people in this room. We have people in power who, who are well taken care of and have a great future and we're, we, we don't have to worry about things. And we have marginalized people right in our midst. And if that's you... You're minority, or you're homeless, or you don't know where your next paycheck is going to come from, or you're a recovering addict who lost everything, or your sexual orientation makes you an outsider. If you're an immigrant, if if that's you, I want to tell you, friends, you are the best thing about us. You're not just this cool person to have around because it makes us feel better. You're actually the best thing about us. And I don't want you to come here and learn everything about how to live. I want to learn from you. I want to learn from you how to have joy in the face of, ad- of adversity. I want to learn from you about how to be thankful when you don't have much anything at all. I want to learn from you about how to just keep taking steps forward in life when you just, everything screams, just give up. We have so much to learn from you. You're the best part of us. For those of us who aren't in that group, who are the people in power, the question is, how do we live as people in power? Boaz gives us this really beautiful example. If you remember, let's read Deuteronomy 24. God says, this is the kind of people I want you to be. Don't reap all your harvest. Leave it for the foreigner, the fatherless, the widow. Leave it for the most vulnerable among you, the marginalized. Sweet, Boaz says. This is, uh, that's just what I'm called to do. All right, I'm going to leave part of my field, a little corner of it. Nope. Boaz says, that's cool, but see, that's just the, that's just a starting place. See, Boaz knew he had a God who was just rich with generosity who didn't have any limits to his generosity. He said, why would I have a limit? And so he saw this law commandment by God as just the beginning. He was just overflowing with generosity and kindness and love and hesed to the marginalized among among him. And friends, this is how we live. We're called to live by God as people in power. Not to see all of our stuff. I know this gets difficult, doesn't it? This gets difficult 
when, when we have budgets and, and we, have bu- we have trips budgeted and we have all sorts of things that we want and we need it and so I need my... And God's saying, can you reorder and reorient your budget around the people around you? Can you reorient your, your budget to include the marginalized? Can you, can you reorder your life to open yourself up to the people around you who need some love and hesed so desperately? And friends, this kind of, if you do that, I'm going to encourage you, think about how I can do that, how I can practically do that. If you start doing that, if you start making choices like this, living in this chesed way of living, if you do that, I've got to, I've got to warn you, it's a little bit intoxicating. It actually feels so good. You feel so alive when you start living a gen- radically unbelievably generous sort of way, don't you? Because what you're doing when you live in this acid, this, this self-emptying sort of way, you're actually tapping into the power that holds the cosmos together. We just studied this book in Hebrews where it says that Jesus holds all things, sustains all things by the power of his word. You know what the power of that word is? It's love. We have a cosmos. We, we are really smart people. There are scientists, astronomers who know all sorts of things about the universe and the cosmos. But there, we are just tapping into reality and what exists. We have no idea. And then you look at the ocean and the bottom of the ocean. We have no idea creatures and fish that live down there. We are really smart, but we don't have the capacity to know it. But all of that is held together by the agape love of Jesus. And when you live in this rich, self-sacrificial loving, kind kind of way, you're tapping into the force that holds the universe together and it just feels good. Would you like to be a people like that? Would you like to be a person who models that? A Ruth, a Boaz. Let's stand together. Jesus, I, I want to be that more and more. I want to embody your, your goodness, your generosity, your kindness, your agape love. I want to embody your hesed. I want to live it out. I want to put it on display because you are so worthy of it and it feels so good. You've created me for it. You've created us for it. And so would you speak, Holy Spirit? You're inviting us into this new way of living or this richer, deeper way of living. Would you give us actual practical ways to embody this? Would you help us to be, to walk closer and closer to the image that is your dream for the church? All people coming together to learn from one another, worlds colliding and celebrating it. Would you supernaturally make this happen, Jesus, that we could be a microcosm of your kingdom and put on display what the resurrection, the new creation is going to look like? Would you inspire us to not live selfish lives, but would you inspire us to live generous lives, to live, live loving lives, to live, look for opportunities to give kindness away. And now we worship you. We're going to worship. We're just going to finish with two songs, friends, but I've got a couple of friends who are in the back. That you have a badge on, they'd love, a volunteer badge they'd love to pray for you. If you need prayer about anything, go receive some prayer. Watch what happens, and then let's worship this God together.